welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And this is episode three of our Spymaster interview series. This week, we are joined by Joey Answer, who you might know from the Bourne Ultimatum as the man that almost beat Bourne, Desh, from the fantastic Tangiers chase sequence in the middle of the film. Yeah, this was a fantastic get. And I remember when we recorded that episode with the Mission Impossible guys, um, one of the hosts of that show highlighted Desh and said he wished that he had been a more prominent role throughout the film. So, you know, for an, a character who has very limited screen time, he really does have an impact. But aside from his fantastic role in The Bourne Ultimatum, this man is a writer and director himself. He's put together a Street Fighter film and two TV shows, uh, which you can find on places like Amazon Prime at the moment. He's also in films such as The Old Guard and Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah, and he's also popped up in like Attack the Block and actually recently the Aladdin remake that Guy Ritchie made. So he's definitely a very interesting talent on the rise with some very notable credentials for sure. And of course... He's in Batman Begins. Yes, and we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But we had a great conversation with Joe, and we can't wait to share it with you. But without further ado, the man of the hour, Joey Answer. And joining us now, esteemed actor, stuntman, writer, and director, Joey Answer. Thank you. Um, Joey, thanks for coming aboard. Um, we initially started to talk to you about the Bourne Ultimatum, but I've since found out you've done a, a litany of other things. So I kind of want to get into that. But I also want to find out how you got started in all this. So take us back to the beginning of Joey. Um, where does one begin? I guess I was a kid. I grew up in London, um, South London, and I went to school in Dulwich. So Dulwich College Prep, which is quite a fancy school. Dulwich College looks like Hogwarts or, you know what I mean, run these very old institutions, sort of educational institutions. Um, so started off there. And, um, and then at the age of nine, I moved to Ghana in West Africa, where my dad's from. My dad's from Ghana. My mum's from uh, Plymouth in Devon, originally in England. Um, so yeah, I guess as a kid, in terms of exposure to cinema, right? What were the influences? Um, I used to do drama and act and plays, but as a kid, kind of, it didn't seem that cool because I guess they're doing Shakespeare and wearing tights and crazy clothing. So it doesn't, I think they need to make, on retrospect, acting more cool for kids. Because I think way more kids would throw themselves into performing arts if the characters or stories they were able to, portray at that time were a little more relatable rather than a kind of period Shakespeare thing where at that age you just don't appreciate it you just think it's not very cool etc um my dad was a big movie fan and I remember every weekend he would rent an action movie whether it was a you know Red Scorpion or a Van Damme film or an Arnie film so we kind of I remember seeing films like Aliens and Predator really young you know, this is before we moved to Ghana, so I would have been like seven, eight. Sometimes with their permission, maybe sometimes not. But that was that sticks sort of uh, firmly in my mind. Exposure and and being a big fan of kind of um, thrillers and, and action cinema. Um, started martial arts 
toying with it whilst I was in London still. My cousin, my older cousin, uh, did wushu and uh, used to come and teach me and my brother, but I, it wasn't like a serious hardcore thing until Ghana. Then I discovered Taekwondo and uh, sort of threw myself into that and got the splits, splits between chairs and all that stuff. You know, Van Damme, the Van Damme bug and Ninja Turtles bug had really hit. Um, Ghana was interesting um, because it was a complete culture shock. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's um it's really interesting as a little anecdote whether it's of interest but being someone who's mixed race i've grown up in a predominantly white environment in england nearly all of my friends were white most of my role models and kind of influences were white and then you move to ghana so so i suddenly when i moved to ghana i realized how out of touch i was with the other half of my heritage and that five years there allowed me to become in touch with, with the other half of my heritage. So by the time I moved back to England at 14, I felt I was a really sort of balanced individual in terms of, you know, the best of, of both, you know, both mm -hmm. sides. Well, actually that's an interesting kind of uh, place to jump in because at what point does the option of working in films become a reality? Like how do you kind of head down that road? Good point. Um, so now I leave Ghana age 14 and move back to England, but to Devon. And then I discover a ninjutsu um, academy and I'm training. There are all these Marines. There's there no kids there. It's just guys. And I kind of turn up and start training. And I so obsessively threw myself into that and then sort of acrobatics and martial arts tricking. So now approaching the end of high school, I was sudden, I remember having the first thought, maybe it's not such a wild idea getting into movies because from where I was in Ghana or Plymouth, Hollywood and where films are made seem so far away that you don't know anyone in the business. So you don't have any kind of point of reference. So it just seems like, um, you know, Oz, Wizard of Oz. It's like some, some other place that you, you, there's no portal to. But the self-belief, like skills, once your skills get to a sort of extraordinary level and you see how people react to what you're able to do, you suddenly think, okay, maybe this could be applied, right? So then it's just educating yourself on the industry. And um, stunts, I think I've said in several sort of interviews that naively at that age you kind of think doing stunts and being an action actor are kind of one and the same thing mm -hmm. so if you want to do action cinema just become a stunt guy and it will kind of opportunities will present itself so as i went further down that route that was the route i kind of pursued it culminated in me getting to work on batman begins um when i was i must have been 18 19 so i was at university now and I was doing a human biology degree, you know? Okay. So I was very much going down this academic uh, pipeline. And then when I was at uni, I was suddenly like, okay, I'm closer now. Mm -hmm. I have now met people in the film business. So Batman Begins was a massive uh, defining experience for many reasons. Number one, it was the first big studio film and what better film than a Nolan production, right? a level of attention to detail, watching his process, 
watching how Christian Bale would would work, um, seeing the Batmobile getting to nip into the Batcave, and you're just like, oh my <laughs> god, this is like you're suddenly understanding how it works, you know, mm. which is really interesting. And that's when I suddenly realized I, I, I need to reconfigure this. I want to be an actor who can do his own action, who can still do stunts, but act because spending that time as a ninja in the League of Shadows, watching Liam Neeson and Ken Watanabe and uh, Christian Bale, eventually you're like, I want to do that. I want to deliver like dynamite dialogue and all the stuff that happens in between the action sequences. I definitely want that, you know, and it's, it's just like a feeling you immerse someone in a situation. They'll either resonate with something or they won't. Some people there are probably like boring <laughs> all the dialogue take after take, but it just resonated with me. And I, and when something resonates with me, I kind of have to go after it, you know? So, um, there we go. Straight after that film, it was like, how do I become an actor in the UK? I need mm. to get an agent. I need to join the sort of union equity. I need to get on this thing called Spotlight. That's kind of a database that all casting directors, agents and actors in the UK use. If you're not on Spotlight, you can't be represented and put up for um, auditions. And there's certain entry criteria to even get on Spotlight. So if you haven't gone to drama school, it's really difficult. It's kind of a chicken and the egg thing because they're like, if you haven't trained, they're like, well, what, what can we see you in? And it's like, well, it's hard to get an agent if you haven't gone to drama school and it's hard to get any kind of good work that's going to impress an agent if you haven't. So somehow you, you, you know, there's his, okay, little anecdotes. It's really interesting. So during the remainder of my degree at university, I was doing what stunt work I could. I was doing um, extras work, um, sports modeling things. And through the extras work, you know, I got to be on 60 different film and TV and commercial sets by the time I graduated. That's a hell of a lot of onset experience, random stuff with like John Malkovich and watching some really good actors. Um, so that was kind of like a kind of film school as well. I think that also played into the desire to down the line, make make stuff as well. Um, so where did the, the Batman Begins part come in place? So you'd start university, you're studying a, this quite in-depth topic you're looking at, and then you've also yeah. got this pull, this, this internal pull to do something. Yeah. Did the Batman Begins come first or was it the sort of background work and then you got Batman Begins around that time? I think I'd already started doing background work and Batman Begins sort of came in the, in the middle of, of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Because I think the necessity was, I got maybe halfway through the first year of university and I realized I don't want to be a scientist as a profession or work in a lab or be a researcher or something i want to do something with my martial arts or performance and i remember calling my dad who was still in ghana and saying this is this is what i want to do i want to drop out essentially and he was like if you start something finish it he was like what does it say about your integrity to other people if you started a degree and bailed out 
he was like, finish your degree. At least you'll always have that behind you. And if you want to be an actor or a stuntman afterwards, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll support you um, in, you know, I'm not, I'll get behind it type thing. But mm-hmm. finish your degree. So I was kind of like, for my dad, literally, I, I sort of finished it. But I thought, shit, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna finish this degree, I'll be 21 when I graduate. If I then went to drama school for another three years, I'll be 24, 25 before I can even start working. Because you're not allowed to work when you're at drama school. You've probably heard the story of big actors who got halfway through drama school, got offered this role and just bailed, right? And never went back. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I need to create my own kind of film school whilst doing this degree and extras work just being on set. And occasionally you're booked as an extra and the director likes you and says, hey, I want you to say a line. And now suddenly you, you're, you're a walk on, right? Or you get your first featured acting credit. So s- stuff like that happened. I remember on a, a BBC commercial, I was went there as an extra and I was suddenly on the cast list on the call sheet. And I was like, oh my God, so now I can get my equity union membership as an actor, not as an extra and so on and so forth. Um, but, but yeah, so then Batman Begins happens. I then graduate uni. I then do my first sort of indie feature film as one of the sort of principal characters and got an agent and then it, it starts to, you know, it starts to roll. Do you remember Spooks, the um, MI5? I do. Yeah. I was yeah. in an episode of that, season four, season five. And that was quite a big milestone because mm-hmm. it was like, a, you know, a big show in the UK at the time. And I had dialogue and I was on screen. And, you know, that was like a, a sort of yes moment. And then, so at least when people, because you know what it's like, it's so funny. People say, oh, what do you do? And you're like, I'm an actor. What, could I, what would I have seen you in? There's this instant assumption that if you say you're an actor, you've been in some Hollywood blockbuster that everyone's going to know. And if you say something people have never heard of, they're almost like, as if like, <laughs> yeah, right. You're not an actor. And it's so cruel. It's so cruel when you actually think about it. So... I remember what it was like before you could say anything people had heard of. Mm. Obviously, it's nice when you can go bang, 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 and they're like, oh, shit. But at first, you're kind of judged very sort of sternly by people on uh, whether in their eyes you are a bona fide actor or not. You know what I mean? Right. And so you move into Bourne just fairly shortly after Batman Begins. That's a really big break coming quite early. I'm curious, um, when you have a character like Desh, he's, I'm just curious because he's a silent character through the film, but mm-hmm. I'm wondering when they're approaching you, are they coming to you as a, more as an actor, more as someone who can do stunts and kind of what is there on the page? What are they telling you about this character to kind of bring you in? Or, I mean, obviously this is a very big opportunity, so you want to take it, but I'm just curious what they're approaching you with. Okay, good question. And, and there's a good answer um, <laughs> to back it up. So what had happened is they had actually cast an actor, I think, who had done some internationally acclaimed film. I think he was an Israeli actor to play Desh. And they had sent him to LA to train with 8711, the kind of fight team. 
And from what I hear from the guys, he was a heavy smoker. He was going out partying every night and turning up to training just, you know, washed up and hung over. And, and after two weeks, I think Jeff Imada, the fight choreographer, called the studio, the producers, like, it's not going to work with this guy. This guy is not going to be able to physically meet the demands. So they fired him. So now they've got only two weeks left of training, potentially. Clock's ticking. We need to recast Desh um, quickly. And part of the urgency was Morocco was the first shooting location for Bourne. The very first thing shot, full stop in Ultimatum, was in Morocco. Um, so whereas Edgar Ramirez, who played Paz, the other Black Bar agent, there was a bit more time because his first scenes came a little later. So I get a call. There's a request casting. The casting director specifically wants to see you, Joey, for this project. And they're like, the first audition is going to be a physical one with the stunt coordinator because there's so little time left for training they need someone who's kind of box ready right so they're mm -hmm. like if you don't have the physical skills we're not even going to look at your acting because it is what it is right they had this huge fight planned so the first audition was at pinewood studios there are about 60 guys there myself included and UK stunt coordinator Gary Powell was there with his team. And I think the first thing they said, who here can ride a motorbike manual, you know, with gears? Mm -hmm. And out of the 60, maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 of us put our hands up. And fortunately in Ghana, I was like motorbike obsessed, you know? And the hard knocks, I remember Gary Powell was like, if you say you can ride a bike, you better fucking be able to ride a bike. You know, it's like, cause we're going to put, we're going to take you outside now and put you on that Vespa and, and see. So those of us who said we could went out. And the funny thing about that Vespa, the, the clutch is still the left, uh, you know, mm -hmm. trigger, you know, whatever. Uh, but to change gears, you have to sort of clunk the whole, handle system up it's i'd never really encountered that before i'd always been a motorbike motocross and a street bike uh rider i'd never really yeah. spent that much time on on especially manual um scooters so as you depress the clutch you've got to sort of clunk the handle up a notch for sort of first gear second gear third gear type thing and mm -hmm. then sort of notch it down so we did their like drive, change up to third gear, turn around, come down, put neutral, put it on the stand, boom. Everyone did that successfully, it was fine. So then we went back in and it was just choreography for two hours. They had set up a sequence, like person A and person B, you know, their moves, pair up with someone and start doing it. So strategy in these situations, you gotta think, okay, how do I, somehow like snakes and ladders how do i uh, rise to the top of this process so i noticed two guys i knew out of the 60 of us, 60 of us in there i knew there were two guys two guys that i recognized so i instantly partnered with one of them and i think he knew i had more fight choreography experience 
by that point than he did. So I was like, look, follow my lead. I'll make sure we both look good. So mm. I'm giving him notes and changing our distancing. And, you know, so when the time the stunt guys come and look at us, they're like, okay, cool, looking good. And then without them telling us, I was like, let's actually swap and learn each other's choreography. Because I had learned person A's choreography, he had B. And I was like, let's swap. And lo and behold, they're then like, right, now start doing it the other thing. But we're one <laughs> step ahead. So they come around and look and they're like, cool, no notes type thing, right? Then they're like, right, swap partners. Same process again. And then I find the other guy that I recognize and same deal, right? Two hours nonstop. I think they wanted to see just stamina, if you could mm -hmm. keep going. And it's with good reason, because when we fast forward to talking about filming Born and that fight, it's just 12, sometimes overtime, 13-hour days nonstop. It's, it really is full on. So I can see why they were so stringent on. If you guys look like you're flagging after two hours. So anyway, we do that. And then to finish, one by one, we go up and film a section of the choreography or one half with one of the stunt guys. They film it and then we're done. After that process, I get a call to say, Joey, you've been recalled, but it's down to like three of you from 60 to like three of you. And now it's an acting recall. Mm, so, okay. so those 60 chaps including yourself were yeah. all for dash at that point yeah yeah and this was the emergency casting call as well that that's crazy that they've gone like we need to find someone and then you've risen to the top of three so that's that's fantastic anyway because i had a question about like the training you put into it but it's such a last minute thing i didn't know any of this yeah i mean look some of these gigs it's so last minute and i'm sure there'll be anecdotes about other projects and stuff like Mission Impossible or this, that, and the other, right? Mm -hmm. So I suddenly get the call um, from Dan Hubbard, the casting director. Joey, there's a recall. We need to see you, you know, today, tonight. I need to, I need to film you for this recall. And I was like, I was in Plymouth. So I had to somehow get back up to London. So in the original script of Ultimatum, it's crazy. It was like a completely different movie. The only thing that was kind of the same was the Morocco sequence. But the rest of the film was very, very different. Um, and remember in The Bourne Legacy with uh, Jeremy Renner, they have the whole thing of those pills that the agents have to take. Yeah, and the they camps, yeah. Them, they start yeah. getting withdrawal symptoms. So that was actually a holdback from Ultimatum. That was originally in Ultimatum. So with the Blackbriar agents, they had it that, to stop us going rogue like the born from Treadstone had, they're having us now on these stronger pills that create a dependency that the agency or our handlers give us. And um, it keeps us on a short leash. So originally at the end of the fight, I'm fighting born and getting the better of him. But then I, the withdrawal starts to kick in and he notices that I'm, I'm looking at my bag that's somewhere and then trying to get to the bag to get these pills. And then he's kicking the bag away and I'm getting weaker and weaker. And he eventually overpowers me. And I almost go into shock, like start having almost a seizure type thing. So I remember the recall was that essentially having this very visceral 
seizure or you know shakes and foaming at the mouth type thing and he's like code it in code it in then i'm dead you know blah 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 so film that with the casting director when waiting then i get a call to say right joey it's down to two of you <laughs> you and one other dude and paul greengrass um he said you couldn't be more different from one another and paul greengrass wants you both to go to his house and just, I guess, have a meet and greet and talk for him to make his decision. So I said to Dan, the casting director, I was like, that's obviously that's amazing, but is he going to see us at the same time? Because that's going to be really, it's going to be like a bidding war, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine how awkward that is. You guys are both going for a dream role at the same time in front of the director everyone's going to be potentially it's like a dick measuring contest type thing and he was like that's a good point that is it will be a bit awkward won't it and he said look paul's a smart guy if he's chosen to see you at the same time he has a good reason for it so i was like cool so i, I again you've got to have a strategy i thought if i get there and he it's a staggered meeting he's meeting me separately from the guy then cool i'll just be myself and try and you know mm -hmm. uh, convince him i'm the best guy for the job if i get there and the other actor is there simultaneously i'm predicting he will be doing his very best to uh you know sell himself and whatever kiss ass or whatever it may be no disrespect to him look that's just the game right it's only natural you would yeah exactly so i thought if that's the case i get there and he's there I'm going to elect to almost say nothing. I'm going to channel the character. These Treadstone Blackborough characters don't lose their cool under fire. So that's what I'm, I'm not going to be pressured. I'm not going to be forced into saying anything at all. If Paul asks me something, I'll try and answer with dynamite, but I'm not going to be doing a little dog and pony show. Look at me. I can do this. I can do that. <laughs> So I write, they send a car for me, take me to Greengrass's palatial place in Henley, which is amazing. He's got a whole like office block on his grounds and stuff. So we go there and, and the other actor's already there. And I'm like, fuck, I see them walking down this kind of, he's got like a gravel driveway with like a orchard kind of like, you know, very pretty. <laughs> And they're what I see them walking down there like a postcard, like two lovers, like bloody, you know, far from the madding crowd or something like that. Um, so I'm like, oh God, okay, here we go. We're gonna, I'm gonna have to play, play it cool. So I go greet him, greet the other guy, and they're already deep in conversation. And I'm just walking with them. Paul's like, come into the kitchen, I'll make you guys a cup of tea. Um, so go in. His daughter comes home from school. I start chatting to her, the dog comes in, I'm playing with a dog, I'm just not really focused on what's that. And eventually Paul asked me a couple of questions and answer. And yeah, cut a long story short, he takes us to some offices and it was very sweet. He was like, I think both of you are really good actors, are very impressed with your auditions. And he asked us about our martial arts background and our acting background and he was like, there's only one Desh role, but whichever of you doesn't get Dash, I'll find something else for you in the film. And he was true to his word. So that the other actor 
ended up being one of the techies, you know, in the sort of um, with David Strickland. The office or something. Yeah, yeah one yeah. of the tech guys bringing up maps and trying to pursue Bourne. And that stuff, because they kept rewriting the film, those techie guys and all those scenes with Pamela Landy and, um, and uh, Vosen, Noah Vosen, um, mm-hmm. five months of filming. Oh, so God. dude probably got yeah. paid more than I did by <laughs> sheer number of weeks worked, right? Even though it's not a super memorable part, but it would have been a nice payday because you're just shooting ad infinitum. For um, sure. Um, I, I'm just curious that, you know, you talk about Paul Greengrass and you're someone who has obviously studied martial arts and action filmmaking for most of your life. And I'm curious... A lot of people tried to copy Paul Greengrass after the Bourne films. And, you know, that's where the dreaded shaky cam term came from that people would criticize action for. I'm curious, though, as someone who specializes in this field, what does Paul Greengrass do that other filmmakers aren't doing? Like, why does it work so well when he does it? Well, it's his approach to all of his, his the totality of his filmmaking approach in these, in these, um, films so it's very easy to zero in on shaky cam in action or a fight scene but you're like that's the style of the whole movie and i think because he comes from a documentary background i think panorama or world in action stuff so a kind of roving potentially war zone type correspondent who's used to capturing the essence of often quite tense or horrific scenarios and when you see that kind of um war correspondent uh, filming is often hovering over soldiers' uh, shoulders as they're shooting around corners. And so he brings that to filming. And it's interesting, even in a dialogue scene, when Paddy Considine's character comes to meet, I think he meets some CIA person, the guy I end up blowing up in the car, you know, the guy who dies in the bomb. Yeah. That guy, remember, meets with Paddy Considine and ends up giving him some very juicy um, intel on mm-hmm. Treadstone. And, and that's why they need to bump him off. That's why I'm sent to Morocco to, to kill Daniels. Um, that The camera is almost like a voyeur, isn't it? As if it's a peeping Tom listening in on a conversation that you shouldn't really be hearing. Um, and I describe it as impressionism. When it comes to action, he's less interested in documenting exact details, A, B, C, D, you know, continuous. He wants to show you the key beats. I mean, I guess combat is chaotic, right? Mm-hmm. It's frenzied. If you've ever been in, in a fight or a melee or you've been in a nightclub when you're having a good time. And the first thing you know that there's even a fight happening is a wave of bodies sort of move and push you. And you're trying to orientate where is this, the source of this wave coming from? What are people moving away from? And it's so chaotic. You, think, you suddenly think, yeah, how many details do you fully capture in a moment like that? And I think that's Greengrass's style, frenetic, close, as I said before, little details are often lost in stuff. Seeing, because let's talk about violence, right? This is something I'm quite passionate about that few films capture. When you see a fight break out, 
you could be across a two-lane road and you instantly get butterflies in your stomach and an adrenaline dump. Um, people's faces contort into these masks, these animalistic masks that you're never used to seeing in day-to-day -day stuff. Your canines get bared when people are angry. That's quite a shocking, you know, hardwired um, cue that we react very much to. When a dog does it and curls its top lip, you're like, fuck, I don't want any of that. And when a human does it, you're like, I definitely don't want any of that. Or a chimp does. Fights are seldom static on the spot. They move like waves, don't they? People get charged until they hit a solid object or they fall over. There's a lot of movement. Um, and there's so many aspects of real horrible violence that are not captured in choreographed fight scenes. Whereas I think the choreography paired with the way it's shot gives you the essence of real violence. And that's the thing for misgivings people have about how little you can see, how, much, how little detail you can make out in the Bourne fights. You definitely feel like you're watching real violence, don't you? And yeah. for that, Greengrass wins. And, I, and he, I, I imagine from his perspective, he would say, I've achieved exactly what I set out to achieve here, you know? Right. It's a very visceral style and it, the way he does it and puts them together. And I always see his camera style as like how your memory works. Because like you say, you don't remember things as just one video that plays. You're, you're blinking, you're looking around. And that's exactly what his camera is doing. And then you, you get to this, this fight scene here that we've got. We've done the chase through Tangiers and now you're actually viscerally fighting with Matt Damon. I have to say, out of the three Bourne films, that original trilogy, that is the best fight scene. I'm not going to touch Legacy because it doesn't come anywhere near those ones. Ultimatum yeah. is probably the best one. And that fight scene is probably the best moment of the films. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I would, I would agree. I, I find it exciting to watch still. You know, it's really odd when you, you, you know you've been in a good film and hopefully you've done a good job as an actor when you can watch yourself in a film and feel detached from you. It's like you're watching someone else, an avatar that looks kind of like you, but isn't you. Mm -hmm. And um, it's so tense. And I, I never forget the very first time I saw the film was at a cast and crew screening in LA. And then the next time was at the world premiere in LA. And people, you could hear that people were holding their breath almost during that fight. And I remember seeing someone gripping their arm rest just little details. Yeah. And when it finally ends and I'm strangled and I slump and it's over, you can almost hear a collective like breathe out like relief because it's so, it's just so tense. You don't want to breathe. You don't want to look away. You're, you're locked and you're invested. I mean, as a, when you deconstruct um, narrative, I love as, as a filmmaker, writer, director, actor, whenever I see a film with an amazing sequence that blows your mind and you're feeling, you're not just, uh, you're not just reacting logically or cognitively to it, but you're having a, a hormonal response. If you were having your blood work done, you would see mm -hmm. varying hormones being released, blood rate going up, perspiration changing. And I think, okay, let's try and create a roadmap of how 
like a conductor, they achieved this effect. The Dark Knight is a really good example. The whole tumbler chase leading to the destruction of the tumbler and then the bat pod being born out of the tumbler leading up to the truck flip in the dark night right that whole sequence is i had tears in my eyes by the end of that seeing that in the imax for the first time and you're like i'm having almost a religious experience watching this thing and i go away and try and understand how nolan has achieved that as like a graph you know mm-hmm. and um it's interesting as humans when we watch art, uh, moving motion picture, or even read a book, we are naturally playing detectives. We're, we're trying to predict where it's going. Oh, from all the clu- cu- uh, clues and information on the page of the characters and their motives, I think this is going to happen next when I turn the page or in the next scene, this is going to happen, right? Because we, like, we, we, we are smart individuals and we like to think of ourselves as smart. So when the filmmaker does something that you didn't expect, suddenly you're in free fall. You're not standing on hard ground anymore and you're completely at his mercy. And that's a very special experience as a film fan when you watch something. I'm sure you guys can think of moments like that in cinema where you're like, I'm in free fall now and I don't know what's gonna happen next. We've gone off reservation. And um, Greengrass with the whole pursuit um in Tangier leading up to the fight achieves that um and just elements there's so much like you can almost break it down into kind of um maths you know the police are chasing Bourne Bourne is chasing me I'm chasing Julia Stiles you've got this four four elements that are all pursuing different elements and they and they all come together that amazing part where you hear the call to prayer ring out and Bourne is on one rooftop, the police are on another rooftop looking at Bourne. Bourne's looking down at me on the ground, who's looking up at Julia Stiles, contemplating jumping across that, uh, you know, that alleyway. And it, everything freezes and you're like, who's gonna make the first move that's gonna then dictate, you know, the flow of energy again. She makes the jump, I then go into the building and then Bourne decides I need to jump through someone's window and into their apartment and off we go again and it's knowing when to sort of stop the action and let the audience catch their breath and then go again and it's it's so nice to to be part of that and then to retrospectively look back and see how how did Greengrass achieve this thing that that we all celebrate and and love you know well like one of my favorite moments in the movie is that moment of pause where all the characters stop and are getting their bearings and i feel like a moment like that just contributes it's so invaluable to that action sequence because my takeaway is actually less to do with some of the chasing and the fist fighting and it's like how that moment is just waiting for the trigger to go off and launch you definitely and it's the it's the stakes what's so nice in film the Bourne films are so, in some ways, unsentimental. They do not try and ram romance and uh, longing of the heart down your throat. The, from Bourne Identity, the romance between Marie and Bourne is very, it's a very slow brew and it's very innocent in the way it develops. 
it's not, it doesn't feel curated. It doesn't feel engineered. There's a real, and a quite a scary story of this guy kind of on the run and she's now been embroiled as an accessory. There's this very innocent, almost teenage type, slightly awkward at times, love performs. Then that gets developed a bit in Supremacy when we realize they're living in India together and she's very much helping him cope with his sort of PTSD and trying to recover his memories. And, and then when she gets killed, Bourne's like, I, there is no happiness for me. I've tried to run away from my past and it's caught up with me somehow. So with Julius Stiles, remember that scene in the, at the truck, the trucker's like diner or whatever, when she confesses that you and me had something and he's like, I don't remember any of it. And she's a bit like, I've kind of put my cards on the table here and you just, you, you weren't even aware we played a game of poker once, you know? Um, but that being said, the desperation born is like, I cannot have another woman who I care about or who cares about me more importantly, risks themselves for me. I cannot have them die on my behalf. So he is a man possessed trying to get to her. And that's the key. There are so many chases in films and pursuits, but you're like, what are the stakes? Are you just trying to, are you running away just to protect your own skin? Okay, that's, that's, uh, those are stakes that have some currency to them. But the stakes of a man who's already had one woman die because of him, trying to save another woman who cares about him, who's about to be slain, he has no sense of self-preservation. He is, he is a man possessed. And that's very, very compelling, very, very compelling stuff, mm -hmm. you know? And when he jumps... And it's true sort of heroism, because when he jumps through the final window to confront me, he doesn't even know what he's going to encounter. He's almost jumping into the abyss because I just blew out with him and blew up the bike and blew up the car and messed him up. Right. And if I didn't have to go and get Julia Stiles, I probably would have taken out a gun and executed Bourne there and then, right? That's the most vulnerable we've seen Bourne in the whole he was at my mercy. It's just I, I had other business to take care of, so left him unconscious, you know, by the, 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 the car. Um, but yeah, those stakes. So as a writer now, I'm always trying to think about stakes because it can turn a, a cool action scene to an action scene that you cannot take your eyes off and you're, you're living it with the character. Well, we can all understand loss. And that's how it helps the, the audience because you can put yourself in Jason Bourne's shoes, kind of. No one, no one is Jason Bourne, but uh, we can try and pretend for a little while. Um, one thing to remark on what you said a while ago, I just uh, just clicked with me. It's really interesting that um, they were originally going to go with that pill idea in in Legacy in Ultimatum because if you watch this fight scene, you almost beat Jason Bourne. You have him on the ropes by the time it gets to the shower. Mm. And so I could see how they had the whole when you were having withdrawal symptoms and you were losing your skill, that they wrote it a different way. So you were basically winning the fight and then he got the best of you at the last second. Yeah. I'm glad they kept it in because one thing that we remarked on when we covered the, the film itself is that there's all these Blackbriar agents that are meant to be better than Bourne, but they never are. Yeah. You were the one who almost was. <laughs> <laughs> So close to being number one. <laughs> but 
Well, here's an in sorry, I'm just getting a drink. Here's an interesting anecdote that you probably don't know about how that fight was originally scripted to end. So forget the pills now. They've they've gone on to new drafts. We actually shot a different ending to the fight, which I liked, and I'm sure you'll like, but you'll understand why they changed it to what we see in the film. So originally, we end up at the back of the shower. He's strangling me with the, um, the towel, and I'm strangling him with my hands, literally choking the life out of him. And we're both, you know, it's like we're in a death lock. And then suddenly there's a bang, and I just drop to the floor and Bourne jumps. And he looks and Julia Stiles is holding a smoking gun. Um, she's clearly woken up from being knocked out by me and picked up one of the guns and saved Bourne. That was a cool narrative decision because she is a, she's not a field agent, a combative agent. She's more of a logistics agent and handler. So to see her actually take a life for the first time was a great bit of character development for her. It also further conveys how close her bond is with Bourne and that she'll kill for him. Especially given that she was a handler for me, you know, so she is, she's killing an agent that, that depends on her. You know what I mean? The reason they changed it is that you realize Bourne has not killed anyone in the film up to that point. Greengrass worked out that, hang on, Bourne will go through this whole film not killing anyone. And even Paz says, why didn't you take the shot? Remember, he spares Paz, he doesn't kill him. So they realized that if Bourne is forced to kill, his whole point is he doesn't want to be an assassin. He's trying to leave that thing again, but it keeps pulling him back. Unless he ends this thing, unless he cuts the head off the dragon, he's going to have blood on his hands forever. And then the new scene that came up as a result of Born killing me, not Julia Stiles, was him with his bruised, bloodied knuckles saying, I see the faces of everyone I've ever killed. I'm haunted by it. And that was a very strong, melancholy um, piece about the cost of killing. It isn't trivial, even for a trained assassin, it's not trivial to take a life. He's desperately trying to leave that behind. But every time he kills someone, it brings back every other person he's killed. And it's yeah it's hard and then julia stiles remember at that point has finished dyeing her hair and cutting it and it's mm -hmm. black and she's looking at this tortured killer essentially she hasn't killed anyone but she's like i care about you but i kind of can't relate to you fully either because you're so with her killing me it would have been nice because it would have been like who would have won had she not been there could born of physically overpowered me probably not but i see why they did it because for born who is the star of the film who's the person we followed through the trilogy it's a great narrative arc him having to kill again and being regretful for it and then it motivates him even more choosing not to kill paz because right. he's like, I've already killed one of you and we're all the same like you you and me are, are one and the same killing you is like killing myself you know um, Steve, I don't know. I, I think I, I kind of want to see the Dash legacy. <laughs> I know they should have. They should have kept me alive. They should have. Well, 
I'm curious because, you know, you've worked with Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible Fallout. You worked with Christopher Nolan. You're saying you were watching Christian Bale. I'm curious, you don't hear as much talk in terms of Matt Damon as a collaborator in terms of action when you're doing these Bourne films. His name is not brought up a lot the way that you hear people talk about the professionalism of Tom Cruise. I'm curious, though, what was it like to have Matt Damon as a close collaborator for an action scene so intense like this? He is... Matt Damon's number one. I would go in terms of like the total package. I mean, we can talk about uh, Cruz later on, but from the moment I met Matt till the closing thing, he's just like, you know, if I could have hearts in my eyes emoji for for him and who who he is as a man, not just how he is as an actor. Super down to earth super intelligent very comfortable in his own skin there's no there's never a moment where he's beating his own drum or having to throw his weight around or pull rank or anything he moves really really well 95 percent of that fight is him it's all very little we did second unit stuff and so the only bits, okay, it's easy to say, what bits aren't Matt in that fight? Smashing through the window, obviously the jump from the exterior isn't him. And um, the interior smashing through onto the floor. He, he kind of covered it, but is a double also did that shot. Um, when I throw him and he goes flying and hits the wall and falls onto the couch, that was his double because he fully hits the wall like horizontal already. Um, when I dump after the side somersault, he sweeps me off my feet and I pick him up and dump tackle him onto like a table thing before grabbing that candlestick. That was his double. Other than that, it's all him. Right. It's all him. He like... He's really good. I mean, he boxes. Matt has, he's got really good hands and head movement, you know, he understands. So uh, Matt's not a Taekwondo kicker, but like his hands, he's a handy guy and he moves and performance. Look, Korok, he's one of the best people I've done a screen fight with because he understands, um, intention and a lot of it looks so real because we would have a discussion between takes and i would say let's say the next sequence we're about to film is um he throws two jabs i parry them and then i throw a right hook at him that he bobs under and then we go into a trapping sequence i would say matt i'm gonna throw this hook I'm not going to throw it high. I'm not going to throw it short in front of you. I'm going to aim for your jaw. Are you going to get out of the way? Are you happy with that? Or do you want me to pull it? And he was like, no, I'll, I'll get out of the way. Because what that allows you to do, if in a fight scene, all I'm thinking is take his jaw off. The, the intention, my face, the distancing, and the intention is all true. And if you were to take any still frame in that sequence, you would think everything about this suggests Joey is actually in real life trying to take Matt Damon's jaw off. And it's those subtle things of just distancing intention that make a fight 
seem very real and brutal and, and you're almost wincing at, at certain hits versus something that's you just don't have that that visceral reaction and i think working with an it takes an actor who understands performance because it's the same thing with um with the dialogue scene it's intention you either believe a performance or you don't based on the intention and as they say what 70 percent of all communication is non-verbal right right people people put too much onus on the line they're saying or the punch they're throwing and forget about all the subtle other body language that communicates whether this is true or not and working with someone like matt we could almost go full whack at each other i mean there were some real hits stuff with the book and i took a full-on elbow across the jaw and you know their stuff but it was really nice and the funny thing with choreography you learn it and learn it and learn it sometimes you're doing takes you're very much aware okay parry parry bob hit bang take a reaction where sometimes occasionally you hit this sweet spot where you're not thinking of anything. There's just a person trying to punch you and you're trying to punch them. And miraculously, every time you genuinely try and punch them, their head at the last second is not there. Or, and you do this six move, seven move sequence. And you're almost like, I had no thought, active thought of what I was doing. There was just Jason Bourne was throwing punches at my head and I was trying to hit him back. And it was a miracle neither of us actually clocked each other for real. But it's that moment of like, that felt real. And there was no like cognition of it. Same with the dialogue scene. Sometimes you're in a dramatic scene where the words just come out. You just, you're just reacting. You're listening to what they're saying and you react and the words come out. That's why they should call it reacting, not acting. Hmm. Because the best actors react rather than thinking about this is what i'm going to say it's like i'm just going to listen to what you say and i'm going to react emotionally to what you've said and how you've said it and um same fight scene dialogue it all ends up becoming the same kind of thing when you boil it down but he's great man even the motorbike stuff we had have sometimes jump between first unit and second unit so i remember i was doing some first unit shots and it's like, Joey, second unit need you. So I'm sort of rushed to another location in Tangier. And I see a bike stunt being done. I see what I think is Matt's stunt double come careening on the sort of dirt bike around a taxi. He does a back brake skid. So the back wheel flips out. He hasn't put his foot down. So he's almost drifting this bike freewheeling and hops off it into a run. And I saw it, I was like, shit, that was sick. <laughs> and I thought it was a double. And I went and looked at playback, and it was Matt who had done it. And I was like, oh, my God, you know. And I was like, he, you know, he's very, very capable. But he's so low-key that people, I don't think people realize just how, how sick he is, you know. Right. It's 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 amazing to think that, especially with uh, fight choreography and things like that, that people are putting their livelihoods in your hands. And you know, Matt Damon, most bankable star in Hollywood around that time. I don't know where he is now in that sort of rankings, but he put his 
jaw in your hands several times and that's a lot of trust and did you did you ever feel that sort of pressure at all or were you that confident in your skills that you were just like i've got this it is a bit hairy when you realize this is the money the whole film the whole financing of this film is resting on this human being's shoulders and if they get hurt or badly damaged it's going to have huge ramifications much more than if i get hurt or damaged um but I guess it's building a rapport, particularly when it comes to fight stuff. We got on really well and had plenty of time during all the pursuit stuff because think we shot for five weeks in Morocco doing all the pursuit stuff, the bomb, the Vespa stuff, all of that stuff where we got to know each other, get to know each other really well before coming back to London and shooting the fight in Pinewood at a, at a set. Mm. So I think you need trust to do a fight scene where you're pushing it like to the limit to not get hurt. If you don't really know someone and you don't know their intention, it's, it's a bit tense. You, you don't quite trust them to, to, to bring things as close, you know? Um, so rapport, I'd recommend for anyone, the better rapport you have offset with someone, the better it is, the more trusting you're going to be on set when you're doing something slightly, uh, slightly dangerous. Or very right. dangerous. <laughs> now, maybe that's a good place to jump over to Mission Impossible Fallout. And just, you know, we were talking about Matt Damon. What is it like working under the Tom Cruise umbrella? Because he's a producer on that film. And mm. he's known to be, I mean, intensely professional on set. What is sort of the vibe of Mission Impossible Fallout and just your contributions to it? Fallout, I mean, I, I've been such a fan of Tom Cruise. I mean, think some of the earliest films you know, I think of cinema is his face, you know, as a kid in the early 80s. Um, and being a big fan of, you know, Last Samurai was a film that I really loved when that came out. And, you know, Few Good Men and Rain Man, you know, Top Gun. So I get this. Um, well, it's an interesting. Let's talk about how I got the role. So I got a call. I just auditioned for a comedy series. And that went well, and I had a recall. And, then, and I, then I auditioned for Mission Impossible. And they were like, we can't, there isn't really a script. These scripts get kind of written as they go along, literally, on these, on these things. Even now, what they're filming on the latest one, all action set pieces, exteriors, there's almost no dialogue. They have a rough idea of, of why the character is here, but then they'll go in, in, in studio interiors six months later, figure out and rewrite and rewrite and Macquarie will, will keep on going. So they're very kind of abstract jigsaw puzzles being put together, those films. So they were like, look, you guy, the character you're up for kind of works for this White Widow character. Um, you'll be in Paris. Most of your stuff will be in Paris. Beyond that, there's no script. No script exists for your character yet. Hopefully, you'll have plenty to do and say. So there was some placeholder dialogue that, that I had to do, like a monologue. It was almost like a military monologue of a guy as if speaking to his men, like... 
if we stay here, we're going to die. We're going to be overrun. We need to get to this place. And I'm, you know, I'm asking you to come with me. It was that kind of piece, mm -hmm. right? So did that went away and then eventually the agent was like, yeah, I think this one has gone away. I think they decided to go with someone older than you. Then I got offered the comedy show. Then I suddenly get a call the same day as I get offered the comedy show, Joey, they've offered you Mission Impossible. And I'm like, I cannot not work with Tom, the opportunity to be in a Tom Cruise movie, you know, especially one where he's doing stuff. I have to do it, man. This is a bucket list thing. But it's again, it's a leap of faith. You have no idea, you have no script sites. You could say nothing, you could say something, you could say load. Well, you have a call action sequence, who knows? So we kind of begin this, this journey. Um, what can I say about the process once on it? The scale is super impressive. Like, yeah, Tom Cruise can access locations that no one else can. For example, case in point, there was a story uh, in Fallout, White Widow's house, after we flee from the Grand Palais, the sequence with the big, you know, rave going on, um, we all escape and arrive in some amazing courtyard and then enter White Widow's lair. Remember where the map is planning the heist that we're going to do. So that shot you see when we drive into that courtyard, that building is holds all of the national statistics and records of France prior to the French Revolution. So Marie Antoinette, all of that stuff, any documents from pre-revolution, whatever, is held there. Then there's another building somewhere else for all the records post-revolution. Um, and they were like, the, the production had tried to get this as a location because it looks incredible. And they were like, no, no one's ever filmed here. It's, it's not happening as much as they tried. I mean, Christ, they could shut down the Arc de Triomphe, right? Yep, right. And do a car chase, yet they couldn't get this place. Tom will be like, let me go and press the flesh with this dude. And magically, now we can shoot there. He's, <laughs> it's, it's a charisma kind of, um, yeah, it's a charisma. Once Tom puts his focus on you and locks eyes with you, it's like he's transmitting 100% of his being onto you and you feel you feel very special you feel very kind of you know and i think it it's he has a real power some is some is interesting over the years working with different a-listers and stuff and you're like i'm used used to seeing you on the screen i wonder how it's going to feel seeing you in person whether you're going to radiate this huge aura or not and boy does tom he he is he has a lot of power and he's absolutely sort of committed, borderline obsessed with filmmaking. Mm. He, he, he is, he is, um, he's on it hundred percent, you know, he's on it and he's not someone that's like late to set ever or languishing in the trailer. He is, he is on it. 
you know, when he comes on set, okay, McHugh, what's the shot? Let's shoot, let's shoot. Money, money, let's shoot. You know, that's his kind of, his, his energy. Um, he takes his work very seriously. He has high expectations for himself. And as a result, he has high expectations for everyone else working with him. And that's cool. Look, I can respect that. I, I can get on board with that. But you, you, you better come ready. You better come prepared because if you, if you, if you don't meet his standards, you're going to, you know, you're going to know about it. Right. Put it that way, you know? So I think it's not for the faint of heart working on a Tom Cruise or someone of a very sensitive disposition, maybe, you know, but he is making films that are pushing boundaries. I mean, the stuff they do on the mission films in particular is so insane that you're, you've got to kind of have that frontiersman mindset, right? Of where we're out trying to do stuff on the unknown. Um, I remember one insanely impressive thing. We actually shot a scene outside of the Grand Palais. So after the whole shootout in that sort of jazz bar where we first meet the uh, White Widow and mm -hmm. all those men are trying to kill Lark, who he's impersonating, and they kind of fight their way out. There's then a scene outside of the Grand Palais. Henry Cavill, Cruz, and Vanessa Kirby are going to the cars, and then me and Zola, her brother, intercept them. And Zola tries to almost attack uh, Cruz because he almost got this, uh, his sister killed. So there's a confrontation by the cars, and then the police are coming, and, and White Widow is like, look, let's not do this here. So we all get in the cars and peel off just as the as the cops arrive. So we're doing this night shoots, right? So we, I turn up at the Grand Palais, ready to shoot. And I go inside and the, in, from the floor to the top of the dome of the Grand Palais, I think it's 75 meters high. It's, it's a very tall structure. And they've got RTEM, like atmosphere, you know, the kind of smoke that gives depth. So it's quite hazy. And I see what looks like Tom and Henry Cavill swinging on wires from the top of the dome. So remember, they parachute, land on the top, yeah. they get in. You may have seen on, the, if you've seen any of the Blu-ray extras, there's a montage of cut scenes, them swinging yeah. on that dome inside and they smash through a, like a, another window. So I go in and your stomach is almost in knots watching how high, because it, it's misty, you can barely see them, yet you're indoors. They're doing these huge arcs. And I said to one of the, ADs who was there. I was like, is that Tom and Henry's doubles or is that actually them? They're like, no, that's, that's Tom and Henry up there. And I'm like, wow. So they're doing that. Eventually it's like, okay, we're ready to shoot the scene outside the Grand Palais. And suddenly Cruz appears now in a tuxedo. He's like, okay, McHugh, let's shoot. And I'm like, you've been swinging around 75 meters high for like the last two hours. Most people would think I need to just be, you know, defragment after doing that. He's just instantly, okay, we're doing this next scene. Let's shoot, let's shoot, let's do it. He's just like all about the work um, and uh, very impressive. I mean, that film, as I said, it gets written as it goes along. Um, but it was fun. You know, I, I have a few being sort of White Widow and Zola's kind of main enforcer dude. You know, I mean, you've seen the film. 
there and planning the mission. And then it's a nice scene actually when the female cop, when they're trying to escape from that lockup and she's there, then I shoot her unexpectedly and I've got Cruz and the rest of the team at gunpoint and stuff. It's a, it's a nice tense moment in fallout, isn't it? When you're like, Oh my God, what's going to happen here? Um, before I get mercilessly quick drawed and gunned down by, by Ethan Hunt. But no, it was, it was really cool. You know, look, I'm used to doing bigger stuff, but it was a pleasure. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change. I was really happy to work on that. And Chris McQuarrie's such a dude. We became, you know, cool on that. And he invited me and I hung out during the edit process and got to hang out in the edit with Chris McQuarrie and watch the film be cut together, go to the Dolby, the Dolby um, testing lounge where you first hear mm -hmm. Dolby mix for your film and stuff. Um, so re really nice, the filmmaker in me, any chance, you know, I've, I've, directed and produced and post-produced my own productions of a few million. I'm like, now let's see how this is done at the 200 million budget. <laughs> I mean, what, what an experience, right? To be in a studio blockbuster edit and see what's different in the post pipeline to, to what you've experienced yourself. So yeah, that whole, the whole experience was, was really cool. Was there anything that you shot for Mission Impossible didn't make the final cut? Um, mm, mm, mm. Uh, well, mainly that scene outside, outside the, um, the Grand Palais mm -hmm. as Zola goes for Cruz, Cruz ends up underhooking him and slamming him onto a car. So then I draw a gun on Cruz and then Henry Cavill comes in and to disarm me. And there's this tense sort of standoff and then White Widow's like, look, let's cut the crap and get out of here so that you see elements of that in the kind of montage of deleted stuff but right um there's, look extra little bits us me and zola driving in the truck you know when we're you know we ambush the police convoy stuff you know there obviously there was a bit more coverage that was shot not every single bit of coverage but there was no entire scenes that i shot that did that weren't in it um but it was a long shoot, man, because that film is going on. But I can note every bit of driving and motorbike and helicopter you see is all Tom, literally. All Tom's stunt double does is line up certain shots for camera. So like the one that he snapped his ankle on, for example. Yeah. Earlier in the day, his double will come and do that jump a bunch of times and they'll set up all the angles. So when Tom turns up, to do it, it's ready. There's no faffing about of setting stuff up. It's all good. That's all Tom's double does. He doesn't actually do any stunts. All on-screen stunts is is Tom. And sometimes being on set, I saw him doing some of the motorbike stuff and the BMW, green BMW, way handbrake turns off the steps, the sort of 180 handbrake turn. And you're just like, wow, man. Hmm. He just, he's, he's, he's like Bruce Wayne, isn't he? He's someone who's made hundreds of millions and has become a master expert. He can pilot just about any vehicle on earth. And as we know, he'll be going to space. So he'll be <laughs> how to pilot vehicles off earth. Um, but yeah, he is, he is the man. He is like, a, the world needs people like, like that to push boundaries, right? And inspire 
people. Well, when I look at your filmography, you know, you've worked with some of the best teachers humanly possible. You know, you've got Macquarie, Nolan, Greengrass, Tom Cruise, Matt Damon. How has that sort of informed your journey, you know, working now so much in the Street Fighter franchise as a writer, director, stunt coordinator, across the board actor as Akuma? How has sort of all of these amazing teachers fed into your career now? Um, it kind of goes back to what I said before about understanding why I genuinely believe there is a formula for good cinema. It's not chance. I think very good filmmakers, look, take someone like Jim Cameron. Time and time again, he'll, from, from Aliens to T1 or T2 or True Lies, he makes these sequences that just hit all the right buttons and they're just a magnificent. It's like True Lies. Any, I, 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 I challenge anyone to not watch that if it comes on TV or any of his films. Okay, maybe not Avatar something that I don't know if I want to watch it in a hurry, but like True Lies, Aliens, Director's Cut, um, the Terminator films that he's done, if they're on, you have to watch them and they never get boring because mm -hmm. there's such magic in their DNA that they, they, they feel as great on the 50th watch as they do on the second watch, you know? Um, so that's a big thing is studying um, the process, why scenes, deconstructing why stuff that you like works. I mean, this goes right back to, I found the Rocky films, like most people, super inspiring, right? The training montages, um, the heart, that where you have the hairs on the back of your neck standing up. And I'm like, this, film, this piece of entertainment made me feel such a strong, all encompassing kind of feeling. I want to be able to do that for other people, hopefully. And that if let's try and study how Stallone achieved that, for example, in the in the Rocky films, what is it about the writing of the character Rocky, the performance, the direction, the music, all the elements? Um, Nolan's attention to detail is something that became very apparent just being on Batman Begins for a couple of months. Painstaking detail. I mean, he will himself sometimes, Cameron's the same, like take a brush and touch up part of the set himself just to look a certain way. You see him looking at his actors and moving their clothing he will he doesn't just leave that to costume department to just he will physically like i want a, i want a slight ruffle here because it, mm -hmm. it it adds something so he's seeing he's zeroing in on all these things that most people are not even factoring in at all and on assassin's fist on street fighter it's filled with such detail, such minutiae, and it's really nice to write, direct, act. It's an entire world. Out of nothing, you're creating something, and every aspect of it is um, by design. There's nothing left to chance. You're not saying to your uh, production designer, yeah, just give me, give me something like populate this dojo with some art some things that look japanesey and 
martial arts. Everything from like in Assassin's Fist, traditional karate training, there are these big earthenware pots that they fill with sand and carry them by holding the, the, the neck of the, and it builds up grip strength. So that's a very traditional karate thing is to just walk. It's like a, um, oh, what's it called? In weights where you walk around just holding dumbbells. Dumb uh, farmer's walk. Farmer's walk, exactly. So it's the karate version of a farmer's walk. But imagine, imagine you could do it with a dumbbell, but imagine you were gripping the dumbbell that way down. So it's all finger strength. So mm -hmm. eventually when you grab someone's throat or, you know, for locking and stuff, you have very strong... So I wanted those pots in there, it's very specific things. And you see Ryu and Ken training and later Goken punches one of these pots. And even the designs on the rice paper sliding doors of the Nyor, you know, a lot of the sort of Akuma's stance, this kind of position or these things are based on Nyor alike demons that you see sometimes in Buddhist temples and they're almost to ward off evil spirits. And they often have like big beads around their neck and they have these sort of crazy sort of uh, poses and stuff. So paying homage to all these things, it's really nice to just seed the frame with stuff that 80% of the viewers won't notice. But that if that 20% are like, wow, you know, even things, okay, let's, let's talk about, it's a good point because for any filmmakers listening you may think what i'm about to say you may think wow i, I never really thought you could do that in post-production so let's take the character of goki uh, who's akuma right so that you there's for those of you who haven't seen my street fighter series you have this character goki who essentially like like darth vader goes down the dark side of the force and becomes his final form is akuma akuma just means demon in japanese that's what akuma translates as um so we see a gradual transition of him descending into this the more he dabbles in satsui no hado the murderous intent the more it warps him so to start off with in the earliest scenes filming goki He's lit like his brother, Goken, right? Um, flattering light, but progressively, I want his eyes to appear more sunken. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to light him differently to everyone else in the same scene. Just that his eyes seem that little bit deeper set, because when you can't see someone, when you've got top-down lighting like, like I have now, and you can't see my eyes, it's much more menacing than you being able to see the whites of my eyes and detail. So mm -hmm. subtly changing that from lighting on set and then also in post-production, crushing the blacks um, and making the shadows more inky around someone's eyes is something very subtle. Um, you can do masking. So you can even in post-production when you're coloring your frame, you could have two people in a frame and you could draw a line and completely light this half of the frame or the shadows in this half of the frame differently to how the shadows are in this half of the frame. So when you shoot on digital, like a red or an Alexa, an Ari, um, the raw files look very washed out and quite milky. And you can see loads of detail in the shadows. 
So when you hear the term crushing the blacks, it's reducing the amount of detail you can see in the shadows. So if you want something very moody where someone is key lit and half of their face is in the light and half of their face is in the shadow, you'd want to completely crush the black so you see no detail on the dark side of their face. But in reality, the raw file, you would see, you would see plenty of detail in the shadow. You have to actively choose to crush the blacks there. So um, also with the actor playing Goki, the more he descends to darkness, progressively in post audio post, your pitch shifting his voice lower. So imperceivably his voice is getting deeper or you're bringing more bass and low end into his voice. It's a, it's a trick I recognize in cinema to make a hero conversely more heroic, put more low end and bass in his voice. So the audience not only hear his voice, they feel it in the mm. cinema. When Leonidas speaks in 300, you feel his voice. The subwoofers under the seats behind the screens are blasting almost subsonic low frequencies at you that your body is feeling. Your ears not necessarily hearing them, that your body is, is, is interpreting them. And if every character doesn't have that effect, but your hero does, suddenly when they speak, you take notice. And it's these little details that can completely change a performance, you know? So much of telling the story is done after the scene has been shot with sound post-production, light, shadows. Um, it's fascinating. And you can, you can go as deep down that rabbit hole as you want or not. But I think master filmmakers really, you know, when you finish shooting the film, you've only done 50% at best of, of the film. You're going to do that work again in post-production in, in detail. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Even giving someone's footsteps more weight. The quality with the foley of someone's footsteps. Think of how Arnie's leather, leather-clad motorcycle boots sound in T2. You, you're like, mm -hmm. he sounds great. Right, you think of all the old westerns, how they would play up the Spurs sound. Yeah, oh, totally. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I was just going to actually ask. So for me, it, it, if we're pivoting off now, you've fought Ethan Hunt. You've fought Jason Bourne. When are you fighting James Bond? I know. And that's, I, I would, I've been close. I actually, I've auditioned for a Bond. I was close to getting, you know, the start of, I guess it's Quantum of Solace, where they fall through the roof and they're hanging on the ropes, you know? Yeah. That. Yeah, I, I, was, I was very close to getting that part, actually. Um, but, yeah, I would love to be in a Bond film one day. Um, I worked with obviously Chris Hemsworth on uh, Snow White and the Huntsman. Mm -hmm. That was a, a cool experience. Um, and he's someone that's got a lot of presence, real dude, real giant of a man. You meet him and you're like instantly, you're like, okay, I can see why you're where you're at. He's, he's yeah. got strong. Um, well, we're a spy movie podcast, so I'm going to throw a couple of quick spy questions at you. You're in the hot seat now. Okay. <laughs> so, Favorite spy film of all time? Wow. No pressure. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, 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 um. 
I'm almost pulling at like performance anxiety. I'm pulling a blank, <laughs> blank of all the spy films. But I think, I think, I think, uh, let's, let's say a be un, let's go with the Bourne film just for, for ease of, of lack of something else. I think we, when all things considered a Bourne film. Right. Would you say that the ultimatum is your favorite of the five? Um, it's hard actually. I, I, I like, a lot of people don't like supremacy. They rank supremacy as, as, the, as the weak, actually as a pure espionage film in what it represents, the locales. I actually think supremacy may be up there. It's odd, people think, but it doesn't have the best fight. I think the car chase, the Moscow car chase is, is spellbinding, but the locations and the mood, when you think of classic espionage, spy stuff, mm -hmm. Germany, Moscow, places like that. So yeah, maybe supremacy for the espionage element. Right. One of the things that we do is we are trying to rank the best spy films of all time. It's one of the goals of our podcast. And for me, Supremacy actually took was a, maybe a step better than Ultimatum in terms of the spy story. So I completely agree. Yeah, I think, as you said, as a movie or an action film or a thriller, maybe Ultimatum, but as an espionage thing, I think Supremacy captures the, the mood of, of what true classic spy stuff is made of yeah and you've talked a lot about growing up and watching all these you know arnold movies and you know dolph lundgren films and whatever did james bond ever play a role of your movie watching or was it a franchise that maybe didn't grab you as much or either way no it, it did and my era was growing up the roger moore era was like prime and some of the most fun you can have in a Bond film is the Roger. I know some of them get a bit ridiculous. What are you talking about? Moonraker, <laughs> <laughs> anyone? Um, but, <laughs> but they're great. For some reason, I feel like from memory, the Roger Moore ones have the best prologues in terms of stunt sequences. Some of the openings to the, to the, um, and the music, the music of, of, you know, Octopussy and, and, um, my brother's a huge Timothy Dalton fan, you know, uh, Living Daylights. And, uh, but yeah, growing, my brother was a huge Bond fan. So it was a, a, a massive part of our household um, watching Bond. And yeah, I, I go and see every Bond. And I think Casino Royale was great. I think it, Daniel Craig's a great Bond. He just post Casino Royale hasn't had great material. I wasn't a fan of any of them since since uh, Casino. So right. I hope this No Time to Die is a great send off for him because he is a great Bond. He just hasn't had the best Bond stories, I think, um, given to him. Right. It's an interesting franchise in that a lot of the casting is spot on. You can't really blame them for who they've cast as Bond ever. But yeah, if the material's not there, you know, it just, it can tarnish that legacy a little bit. I mean, I think a lot of that surrounds Brosnan now where I love Brosnan. I think he's great in Goldeneye, but he didn't have necessarily the, the run that you'd hope. Yeah, yeah. Who's your favorite Bond, both of you, out of interest? I mean, I grew up in the Roger Moore era as well. So it's very hard for me to look at the spy who loved me and not think it's like the greatest Bond film of all time. 
for the longest time, I was a Pierce Brosnan boy. I, uh, GoldenEye was my first film I ever saw that was Bond film. But going back years ago and actually rewatching them all, Sean Connery is the winner for me. Okay, so on review, Sean Connery was the... Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's a dude. What, what can you say? It's... And they're of the era, I guess, because um, Sean Connery's time... Ian Fleming was probably still alive back in the 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he passed away. So just when those films are set and when they were made is closest to the true essence of, of, of Fleming when he, when he wrote them. Do you know what I mean? Whereas yeah. modern ones, the sensibilities of those books were off the time. The further away we get from that time, the more warped some of what Bond is becomes it's in conflict a bit with the trappings of, of the times we live in now versus the simpler times somewhat, um, mm-hmm. you know. So I, w- I would take it from what you said before that Roger Moore is your Bond, if you're going to pick one? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's for, it's for what reason? For sheer fun, for the all-round package, because in some of them, Roger Moore, in the films before he gets too old, handsome guy and he can be be you know lethal but you have you have fun and his just his best of british just the way his little <laughs> eye raises at, at jaws and just a little his quips sometimes you're just you're, you're just like you know in terms of the finest exports of of, of british humor you know i think he does a good job who do i believe would be a spy or a killer. The nice thing about um, Daniel Craig is you believe this guy could end lives, you know? Yeah. Um, it's hard. I, I don't know if I could pick easily one bond to end them all, where some people are like, Sean Connery, no argument. And it's a very clear cut thing for them. I'm kind of, I like elements. It depends for what reason, you know? Well, that's it. A lot of people come to spy stories for different things. Some people like the, the, the campier, more joyful side, like the Roger Moores and some of the Pierce Brosnan. And some people want that spy intrigue that you get from Sean Connery and, and Daniel Craig. But it does all of it. Here's a good espionage. Since you asked me a question, could I enter Inception as a spy film? That's one we're still debating, but I think there's plenty of grounds for that argument. Yeah. I mean, we covered Men in Black, so there's there's got to there's got to be room for it. I think I'd say. Yeah. But espionage, in a way, it's li- quite literally, it's dealing with corporate espionage, isn't it? You're trying to stop a takeover, or so by seeding something in a in a rival, and it requires agents to intel gather and plan missions and heists and the equivalent of I've got microfilm and I need to photograph blueprints. It's it's almost the opposite. I need to plant blueprint mm. in someone's mind. And it's, it's a huge homage to Bond, isn't it? Especially the whole snowy um, sort of final act um, in the deepest layer of the dream state. I think as a modern retelling or, or, or a fresh spin on the espionage drama, I definitely add Inception in as a, as um, yeah, I mean, Tenet is Tenet. Tenet is technically an espionage yeah. film, isn't it? Yeah, but we're counting Tenet. We're actually going to be covering it uh, about a month or so. Okay. Cool. Um, Cam, do you have anything you'd like to add? 
don't think so, but I'm just wanting to know if there's anything coming up that you want to maybe plug that people should keep an eye out for. Um, 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 destitution. Um, yeah, right. Kind of a weird time for plugs with not a lot necessarily going on, but. <laughs> yeah, there's not, I mean, a huge, I'm kind of focused. I'm writing a whole bunch of a slate of projects for myself because in terms of what do I want next? I've paid my dues as an actor um, for you know many years now. I mean, I did the old guard recently. Yeah. See yeah. That recently, it's time now. Um, I'm ready to star in some stuff because look, when you're playing supporting roles, you're only often allowed to show two dimensions. Here's a good analogy. I often say from narrative design, the only three-dimensional character in most films is the lead. And every other character are like bumpers in a pinball machine. The lead is, 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 is the pinball itself. And the, the narrative function of other characters is to redirect the hero's trajectory um, either by being a gatekeeper that they cannot get through, so it forces them to find another way round, or something to be overcome to then access another part. So it's very frustrating when you actually, sometimes it's liberating, because now when you're a young actor and you get a role, you're thinking, I'm going to create a backstory for the character, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and then you get on set and the director's like, no, no, just come up, say your line, don't put anything on it. And you're like, all the, the, the kind of pretentious actory talk about prep and research and development, that's only relevant really when you're playing the star because mm -hmm. it's the only character that is allowed to show multi-dimensionality mm -hmm. and infer a backstory that isn't seen, that is motivating future events. When you're playing these other characters, you're playing archetypes and archetypes have to be instantly recognizable by the audience. Oh, I know what you represent. And I know the, um, how much length of leash you, you've got to play on. So you could go for two decades as an actor in all this stuff. And you've only ever been able to show two dimensions. You've never been able to show anywhere close to what you're capable of. And it's only, once you start being number one or number two on the call sheet that um you can really do that and uh so yeah so my my efforts now are to create you know it's like matt damon had to do and stallone had to do you know mm -hmm. if, if you're not being served that some actors are very fortunate straight out the bat they're landing lead roles and then their career just continues so all they've ever known is playing three-dimensional characters but when you've, and you've paid your dues for 15 years, like me playing largely two-dimensional characters, Akuma is probably the most interesting character I've played, but it's one that I've written and mm -hmm. directed, you know? Um, but because it's tied up in the, this video gamey anime looking thing, the industry doesn't necessarily give it the full respect. So creating more contemporary thriller type things it is going to be a better calling card. You know what I mean? So that's what to look forward to. I mean, I'm always, I'm always working as an actor in this and that, you know, that's fairly steady, but in terms of filmmaker wise, um, yeah, 
that's that's where my sort of efforts for example i'm writing a a project based on the dutch resistance in world war Two. Mm -hmm. oh cool and uh it's in some ways it's quite espionagey and and one of the greatest traitors to the dutch resistance people being turned by like ss gestapo agents to work against like infiltrators against the resistance very interesting time but it's based on um some some facts you know some real events mm. so like a, a fictional outer layer built around a, a real um you know mm -hmm. a real series of events so yeah there we go very cool great well joey all that's left to say for me is firstly thank you for joining us this has yeah. been fantastic. Um, where can people find more from you? Uh, where can people see the Street Fighter films? What are the best uh, links? Street Fighter. I mean, you can follow me. I'm on Instagram at the Joey Answer. Um, Assassin's Fist is on. If you're in the UK, it's on Amazon Prime, free to view. Um, otherwise, out of uh, the UK you could rent it or buy it on Amazon Prime there for a small fee on iTunes and all the normal places. I mean, Assassin's Fist has been out for a while. Again, Street Fighter Resurrection was another miniseries I did afterwards. I think in the UK, that's on Amazon Prime. You know, the distribution things, they sometimes these projects move home. It was on Netflix. Oh, now it's on Amazon Prime and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, follow my IG if anyone wants to reach out to me. Uh, follow my IG and uh, and yeah, man. Awesome. We'll put a link to that, of course, in the show notes so people can do that as well. Cool. So well, it was a real pleasure. Um, thanks for having me, guys. It was great to meet you and chat to you. Talk oh, shop. This was a blast. Thanks for being so generous with your time because this was oh, really good. insightful on so many projects we really love. Appreciate okay. It. Take care of yourself. That's thanks, fun. buddy. And we're back. What a fantastic interview we had there with joey answer i mean it was a great time yeah it really was and gave me a lot of insight into movies i already loved like um you know obviously mission impossible fallout is such an amazing film born ultimatum i'm a big fan of as well and just batman begins that was a real bonus for me so i was really excited to hear him talk about working with those directors and just the process of some of those great stunts exactly i said it to the man and i stick to it i want to see the dash legacy well, maybe one day, right? Maybe. You never know. He almost had Bourne. The only thing I want to touch on in terms of the interview, uh, wrapping up, was that revelation about the story from Legacy originally being an ultimatum. Yeah, because Legacy is our movie this week. And um, I really thought that was interesting because I think a lot of reviews were written at the time, back in 2012, when Bourne Legacy came out, being like, this Kems thing is really stupid. This doesn't match anything to do with what's great in the originals, blah, blah, blah. So it's very, very interesting to hear that the Kems was something they were flirting with, even during the golden era of Bourne films, as you know, I think a lot of critics would have considered it. Yeah, I think we would probably say the same. But it's interesting what Joey said, because one thing we remarked on our episode that came out a few days ago on Bourne Legacy is they had this whole idea of them sort of withdrawing from the pills but we never really saw any of the agents start to fall apart. Yeah, yeah. You see Jeremy Renner fall asleep. That's around about it. Yeah, I know, right? Like, it seems like the sort of thing you would want to pay off if you set it up. And that's something we definitely criticized about Legacy. 
I really enjoyed that him, you know, that he talked about how that was the plan, that his character would actually suffer from this. And you just wonder, like, if this was something they were flirting with. I mean, they had the same producers on Legacy as well as the original Bourne films. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't they have fought to keep that consistent? I think if you did it in the way Joey presented it, where, like, he's scrapping with Bourne to get to his pill packet to get through the fight because he almost has him, that's got tension to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas as we were presented with in Legacy, it was almost like a, it was a driving force for Jeremy Renner's character, but it didn't really seem to affect him. Yeah, well, it's that classic Spider-Man thing, right? Where in the comics, he'll run out of web fluid or he's almost out of web fluid and Doc Ock's attacking, you know, how is he going to get out of this scenario? That's the sort of thing that I think is really fun and interesting to work into a Bourne film for especially these characters who... As we keep evolving in the franchise, they keep saying these new assassins are more and more deadly than the last. So, like, what is their weakness? And I think it's interesting to create a weakness like that. Yeah, I think it, it humanizes them even when they are, you know, superhuman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, that's kind of a bummer that we didn't get to see maybe, a you know, a Paul Greengrass take on that type of material. But, um, no, it was just nonetheless fascinating to hear uh, Joey's talk about some of these experiences working on these films, like just the entire process of getting the gig, obviously the complications that came with that was a great story. A lot of really interesting insights. And I loved him talking about, you know, Nolan's attention to detail, for example. I mean, what a learning process. No kidding. It must be amazing to see all these masters of their craft executing it. And in in some of their best films, Fallout, Batman Begins, uh, Born Ultimatum. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Talk about working with the best of the best. And I mean, definitely very, very fortunate career to have worked with some of these talents because, you know, a lot of actors will bend over backwards just to get into a Christopher Nolan movie or what have you. And, Mm. you know, having that fortune early in your career, I'm very interested to see where Joey's career goes from here because I think we could see some really interesting action stuff and I would love to see what he can achieve just now as a stunt coordinator and, you know, with someone who has the eye of a director now as a writer, I think we could have some interesting things in the future. Absolutely. And the only thing I'll mention about is we also spoke about spy films and bond and, you know, he had a, had a brush with the bond franchise himself. Yeah, he did. He did. I mean, I'm hopeful that he does wind up in bond at some point and I think it's a little fortuitous that he didn't get Quantum of Solace because for two reasons. One, Quantum of Solace, not one of the great Bond films. Number two, the action scene he's talking about, that whole scene with the pulleys and the you know ropes where they're swinging around, mm-hmm. that thing's edited to just garbage. Like, it, it's a great sequence that's just been edited to ribbons. So a lot of the great work that would have been done there would have been compromised, I feel, by the edit because I think Mark Forster's editing of that whole sequence is pretty messy. So I would love to see him in an action scene, maybe more akin to what we saw, you know, like the big um, parkour chase at the start of Casino Royale, like a sequence that really shows off the skill of the performers. Absolutely. And, you know, I've I've gone on the record and saying I don't want a massive megastar known entity as the next Bond. Yeah. Um, I You know, a lot of the previous Bonds have been, you know, not people who haven't worked before. They've had work, but they've never had that breakthrough role. Yeah, like Roger Moore was probably the most famous, right? When he's cast, having done The Saint? Yeah, I think so. Like Sean Connery was basically out of obscurity. Daniel Craig had done some stuff. Pierce Brosnan had been Remington Steele. Yeah, Brosnan's a known quantity because he'd done, I guess, Mrs. Doubtfire. 
And mm. Timothy Dalton was a respected actor. He'd been in The Lion in Winter, um, the film adaptation. I mean, he might have been in the play as well. I don't know. But very respected actor, but not a movie star for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of actors, Joey, hopefully they, they give you a call. You never know. And like I said to uh, Ross and Marshall Thurber, I never would have said Daniel Craig. If you'd asked me back in the day when Brosnan's leaving, who should they get? I never would have ever answered Daniel Craig. And look at what I would have been robbing myself of, you know, had they followed my advice. Yeah, Quantum of Solace. (laughs) No, but jokes aside, I want to take this opportunity to thank Joey again for taking the time to speak to us. It was a great interview with a lot of really interesting information. And thank you all for listening as well. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. And we hope again in the future to do more of these Spymaster interviews just to show some of the craftsmanship that goes on behind the scenes, especially in areas like what Joey's contributing, where maybe people don't think about as much about it, because I think there's some really fascinating details to glean from his um, interview there. We'll be back next week on Tuesday with the 1985 Tom Hanks spy comedy film, The Man with One Red Shoe. But until then, folks, good luck on the run from Desh. <laughs>